Hey everyone, welcome to the Land of Hope podcast. Come with us this week as we plant our feet in the Land of Hope. And, and those are, the, that's my own stuff. So it's not because anyone in here is like politically dangerous or like has all these opinions. But I really felt convicted that with the midterm election on Tuesday, that we take some time and look at what does the Bible say about how we as Christians are supposed to interact with our government. And it was as much for me as for us all as I shared today, because I think some topics are touchy, and so we actually kind of retract from going there. Does that make sense? It's like, well, then stay on the surface of it so we don't have to be stressed out. And I really felt the Lord to say, I want you to do a deep, deep dive into this and share with the congregation kind of the things that came out of that for us. So I'm going to do that today. I spent probably more hours in research this week on this sermon than I have on any other. And and this is what I'll say just from the beginning. We're all going to interpret things differently. This is my interpretation at this time. I'm not saying that that what I'm about to tell you is exactly what, it's my interpretation of what I'm reading from scripture. Does that make sense? One of our values here at Hope is diversity of thought. And that means that not only are we okay with people inside the same congregation voting differently and thinking differently, but that we actually think that is a strength of ours that we can learn, listen, and love one another and respect each other without having the same opinions as to how problems should be solved, okay? To me, that's what politics is. Different theories of how problems should be solved. And therefore, I'm very hesitant to assign moral value to one position or another because I think This person has this idea about how best to solve, let's say, child poverty. And this person has a different idea of how to solve it. Both want to solve it, but we just have vastly different opinions on the best way to go about it, right? And so for me, that's that's what I'm coming to this with. Does that make sense? I don't want to see a day where everyone at Hope votes exactly the same, or we all agree with each other on every issue. I think when we're in perfect alignment with a political kingdom, we are in misalignment with God's kingdom. We are meant to feel politically homeless. And if we feel at home in a political party, I I don't think that's necessarily a healthy thing. I think we should always feel like we're foreigners in a foreign land. Does that make sense? Which all of this, I hope you know, is very uncomfortable for me to say because I thrive in environments where we all think the same. (laughs) I feel much more safe and comfortable not having hard conversations, right? But I wanted to kind of share with you where I'm coming from as I approach this so that you, you hear what I'm saying with this understanding of where I'm coming from. Okay. So the first verse that I really latched onto for this was Isaiah 32, 1 through 2. And Isaiah is full of messianic prophecy, right? The prophecy of this king that will come and will fulfill 
all that God wants to do in his people. And in Isaiah 32, 1 through 2, it says, A king will reign in righteousness, and rulers will rule with justice. Each one, each ruler, will be like a shelter from the wind and a refuge from the storm, like streams of water in the desert and the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. Isn't that the most beautiful picture of what it means to have a leader, a king, rulers who are holy and righteous and providing for the people that they lead like a shadow, right? Like, a, like shade when you're too hot, like streams of water and a shelter from the wind. But as I was reading this passage, (laughs) what stuck out to me, and I hope sticks out to you, is the fact that there's never been a human leader who lives up to this, right? And the point is, see, a king will rule in righteousness. What are we talking about? We're talking about the heavenly rule that comes with Jesus reigning in his kingdom. And so I wanted to start with this verse because I think we have to always keep in mind that this kind of picture of justice, of righteous rule, will never be fully realized here on earth by any earthly leader, right? This description is reserved for Christ. And so it's important to keep that in mind because I think sometimes what I have seen happen, especially in the last few years, what is it about the last few years, you guys? In the last few years where we think if just this law will pass or just this politician will be, you know what I'm saying? We we have in our minds this idea, maybe because we love to be the ones with agency in our own lives, that if this candidate or this law or whatever else happens, then we will somehow usher in this peace, this shelter from the storm, this streams of water in the desert, this this place where we feel the, the peace and fulfillment of what our hearts are longing for. And my first admonition to us as a church is, what our heart is longing for cannot be fulfilled in that way. Mm-hmm. Not by the right person being right person being president or the right law passing or the right law being revoked or anything else can we experience what is being described here. Yeah. So I just want to start with that. If we come back to kind of the beginning of human relationships, we can think about how there was some kind of order, right, when Adam and Eve were in the garden. The order is God over everything, and then Adam and Eve are commissioned to rule, to reign, or to be stewards of the creation, animals, the land, And it wasn't until sin enters the picture that 
men in, in the Bible encyclopedia, it says men ceased to contribute to each other's welfare and instead preyed on each other. So the picture of humanity that we will have in heaven one day was that men, as in humanity, this was written a long time ago, humanity would be contributing to each other's welfare. Right? Like any, think of any utopian society that has eventually failed. Any utopian society that starts with these wonderful ideals, communism and, you know, all these things that in theory you're like, that is the way it should be. I mean, let's even talk about the church in Acts 2. How long <laughs> did they last? In this, they shared everything in common and they were constantly praying. And it's like, eventually that model like outgrew itself, right? And they had to be like, oh, we do clash. Oh, we do disagree and not come back together and exactly like good ship lollipop, right? So <clears throat> this is this idea is that ideally every human would be working for the welfare of other humans. But sin enters the picture, and our hearts are bent towards ourselves, irrevocably, right? I mean, even on our best days, even when we're fully aware, which we're not. I mean, sometimes you know when you're being selfish, but the rest of the time, you just think you're clearly in the right, right? That is our default setting, that the way that we're thinking about something is correct. And so <clears throat> this is what sin has done, is that humanity, instead of working for each other's welfare, is preying on each other. And this is where government comes in. Not that God didn't already have a hierarchy established before the fall, but that after the fall, what is a secular government meant to do? Well, as far as the Bible's concerned, secular government's role is to manage this idea that humanity in general needs boundaries around it so that people aren't free to prey on each other, right? So there's some mitigation of if you hurt someone, there's a consequence, right? It's the stuff we teach our children. You gotta go sit in time out, <laughs> right? There's consequences for our actions. But to equate that with somehow being the kingdom of God is a false equalization. I don't know what the best word is there, but it's, it's a, it, it, the, the two things are not related. Other than that, God brought government and authority into the world to mitigate what sin did. But they're not one and the same. Does this make sense to everybody? And I think what's important is that to remember is that there's no explicit description of the state in scripture. There's no like, this is how your government should be set up and this is how it should function, right? And because there's no explicit stating in scripture of how we should be doing things, it didn't set up democracy or socialism or anything else, we are allowed to disagree about how a government should function and still be in bounds inside our biblical understanding of, of following God. 
Does that make sense? We're allowed to disagree, and we're allowed to have different opinions about how the Bible asks us to submit to authority and government. So some of us are going to feel very strongly one way, and some of us are going to feel very strongly the other way. But it's in bounds to have different convictions and a different leading of our conscience in this area. Because the Bible doesn't say this is the one right way to interact as a citizen. Democracy is nowhere present in the Bible, by the way. So we don't have a, when you vote, do this, <laughs> right? Because that did not exist in this world. So that's something to keep in mind, too. There's wiggle room, is what I'm trying to say. So when we think about that unique kingship of Christ, that Isaiah, right? He'll be our wonderful counselor, our prince of peace, our everlasting father, right? The, this old covenant, there, there's two spheres in which human authority is exercised in scripture. In the Old Testament, God set up his government for whom? Like when God was addressing how he wanted things done in the Old Testament, who is he speaking to? His chosen people, Israel, right? He wasn't talking to Babylon. He wasn't talking to Persia. He was like, hey, if you're my people, this is how I want you to behave, to submit to each other. And that's where we have their legal code, their constitution, right? Leviticus and Deuteronomy and all those things. But those are applicable only to the people of God in that time, right? In fact, it said, we can assume this because if a foreigner comes into Israel, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to treat them as if they're an Israelite, i.e. they also get to rest on Sabbath. They also get to eat at your table, et cetera, et cetera. So with that said, we know that Israel had its own thing and that other nations did not do that thing, okay? So that's the Old Testament, this two spheres. One is for God's people, very specific, okay? And one is among men in general, among humanity in general. So we can't look at the Old Testament kind of system and say that is what we hold everyone accountable to. Why? Because it was meant for God's people. For the people who have chose him, this is the way I want you to be managed or think of your life. And, and they were all living together. Think of if every Christian person in the world lived in the same state and non-Christian people visited, but there was no community outside Christian community that we lived in. Okay, that, that would be the same as what God was saying to the Israelites. That is not the situation that we are in. Amen? We've been sent. We've been scattered. So with that said, to look for a modern counterpart of David, Hezekiah, any of these kind of king, Deborah, these kings or judges of Israel that were like the key leader who did everything right, it's like, not did everything right, but we're godly people who God put in. We're not looking for a modern counterpart of that. Does that make sense? That's not applicable in our situation. We're not looking for the return of David or the return of Hezekiah or the return of Moses in our modern day understanding. 
What we need to look at is what Jesus and Peter and Paul said about how we're meant to interact with the government. Okay, because that is for people living in diaspora, for people who have been scattered, for people from a million different backgrounds to follow, right? So I want to make sure that's really clear because for us, in the kingdom of God, there is only one king. Does that make sense? We're not looking for a David. We're not looking for a Hezekiah. He's come. We know him. And he's not a king that rules here on earth. And I love, I, I, I think this is a revolutionary war quote. Not that they were always on top of things, but no king but Jesus. Right? No king but Jesus. And I would add to that, no kingdom but God's kingdom. Right? No king but Jesus. No kingdom but God's kingdom. So if the church is the realm of God's grace, where God governs his people and says, this is how I want you to live, which we all want to aspire to live by, right? Fruits of the spirit, gifts of the spirit, et cetera, et cetera. The state, the government, is the realm of God's common grace extended to all people. Right? So that's where in Isaiah, nope, in Matthew, it says, For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. Okay? So we're talking, we have a special grace in relationship with Jesus, but God's grace is for all humanity in some ways. Right? It's like we can even go to creation and say, if the earth was one degree off, we'd all burn. <laughs> if it was another degree off, we'd all freeze. Right? It's like this is the grace that God has given to all people, that he provides food and shelter, all these things. Does that make sense? Okay. So there's that specific grace, and then there's common grace. And so <clears throat> the government, although it is of divine authority doesn't ask its people to reflect Christian standards. Those are two separate realms of God's operation. So your, our government, our state, will reflect Christian standards in so much as Christians are involved in that state. Christian politicians or people who live their life by that values. But the expectation that the state is going to instill Christian values over all Americans, are, are, they're two separate realms. It's not a Christian government with usurpers. Does that make sense? We are a Christian people, and we live with a state made up of a representative of the people of which Christians can be some. Does that make sense? Okay. I'm going to read you what Paul wrote in Romans. Okay? Romans 13. He said, Every person is to be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God and those which exist established by God. And that's what we're talking about, the common grace that mitigates the sin factor. Right? I've never seen any of the Purge movies, 
but I'm assuming that's what life would look like without the bounds of government to put boundaries on people's sin, right? Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. So he's basically saying, you live at peace inside the laws that have been created for you because, think end game, you're making the gospel going out harder every time that you bump up against the laws of your nation, the laws of the state. And Paul had experienced this. Pax Romana, that he could travel a road that he could say, I'm a Roman citizen, so you cannot, you cannot throw me in jail with no trial, right? I get to appeal to Caesar. All these things that were from not a Christian, totally pagan state worked, the peace of it worked to contribute to the gospel going out. And then I think of a place like Haiti where things are in utter chaos a lot of the time. It's hard for the gospel to go out when the roads won't work. It's hard for the gospel to go out when you don't have means of proclamation because everything's in disarray. Does this make sense? Paul is saying, I've benefited from the state being a state of peace. And as much as he can, he obeys the authority of the Roman state, as did Jesus, as did Peter. So it says, <clears throat> do, you do you have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you'll have praise from the same. For it is a servant of God to you for good. The state is a servant of God to you for good. But if you do what's evil, be afraid. For it does not bear it, the state, does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a servant of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. And so it's saying rejoice in the role that the state plays in your lives that we have such things as consequences for wrong actions, right? Now, hopefully not at the edge of a sword, <laughs> as in Jesus' this time, <laughs> but that is part of the benefit of having the state, right? And so it says, therefore, it's necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So he's saying it's not, it isn't just about the fact that if someone wrongs you, they get paid back. And for that reason, people don't do as much wrong as they would, right? But also, it's a matter of conscience because you need to have a clear conscience. You need to have conviction in your heart that the state, one way or the other, is not the gospel you're preaching. What gospel are we preaching? The kingdom of God, Jesus. And I've seen so many Christian leaders and Christian people where if I looked at their social media or I looked at their, the way they talk or whatever, I'm like, the gospel you're preaching is the gospel of politics. It's the gospel of this party or that party or this initiative or that initiative. And, and that is 90% of what I'm hearing from your mouth. 
as is, by the way, every believer and non-believer who you interact with. I had this conversation with girls this summer. We did a, a women in, well, actually there were guys there too, a women in ministry leadership workshop. And I said, here's the thing about women in ministry. Do I believe in it? Yes. <laughs> Here I am. Do I believe in it? Yes. Do I think things need to change? Yes. But I don't want women in ministry to be the gospel I'm preaching. I don't want that to be the main thing. People look at me. I don't want them to think that's the women in ministry person. I want them to think that's the gospel person. Right? So we all have to be careful to protect our words and keep the first thing first which is that the gospel we're preaching isn't the gospel of the state. I don't even know if we should call it gospel, because gospel means good news. <laughs> but the gospel that we're preaching, central, first, foremost, is the salvation of people's souls, and that is the one thing the church can do that no one else can do, right? There's organizations who feed the homeless. There's organizations who serve. There's organizations who lobby. And I'm not saying any of those things is wrong. I hope that we care about the homeless, that we're serving in our community. But what is the one thing that church can do that Rotary and Elks and every other organization you can think of cannot do? It's the spiritual, right? It's the gospel. It's salvation for your soul. So we have to keep that central. So Paul's saying it's of your practical benefit not to be at war with the authorities all the time. Practically. It also creates a really bad reputation. <laughs> but secondarily, not secondarily, but keep in mind too, it's not just a matter of practicality. It's a matter of our conscience. Lord, what gospel am I preaching? I don't want to hear people rant so passionately about something political when they don't know their neighbors' names. They don't, they don't ever talk to anyone about their faith journey. I'm like, I don't want to hear a rant until you have brought cookies to your neighbors on both sides. Then I'll hear your political rant. <laughs> no, I never want to hear one. <laughs> Just, just so you know, I never, Amos might, I don't want to hear it. That doesn't mean your opinions, I mean an actual rant. But do you guys hear what I'm trying to say? Keep the first thing the first thing. And it says, because you, of this, you also pay taxes for rulers or the servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing, i.e. keeping the peace, keeping things from total chaos and anarchy, right? Pay to all, pay to all what is due them, Tax to whom taxes do, custom to who custom. So he's like, don't be like, well, I, I answer to a higher authority. I don't need to pay taxes, <laughs> right? He's saying, no, pay your due taxes. Respect to whom respect and honor whom to honor. Pretty strong, Paul. <sighs> so this is what <clears throat> we take from both this and Jesus. Okay, so let's bring it back to Jesus. Jesus lived in the midst of this nationalistic resentment toward the alien rule of Rome. Right? They're pagans. It's not democracy. Emperors either kill each other to get where they are or they're born into it. And 
one of his disciples, Simon the Zealot, is from this background of, so he would be, we could say he, he's the Christian nationalist of the disciples, along with the tax collector, Matthew, who's in bed with Rome, as well as the fishermen who were like, I don't know, I'm just trying to eat every day. I mean, don't get it twisted. Even inside the disciples, one of Jesus' values was diversity of thought. Right. right? He was not like, and then we have Judas Iscariot, who's like, what about the money at every turn? <laughs> and I'm just like, Jesus was not at all concerned with everybody being on the same page in this way. So it would have been easy for him to fan the embers of bitterness about this enemy Rome, right? And he did not do so. He said he made the, the dichotomy that I'm trying to make here. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God's. Don't combine them. Don't see them as the same. And, and again, that is tough for us, right? When standing before Pilate, Jesus affirmed this same attitude. The man who tried him was unworthy of his office. <laughs> the trial was a travesty of justice. Amen? It was, it was, it was bullcrap, <laughs> right? These witnesses, these, these, I mean, they paid people to witness against him. I think of how many podcasts I listen to about trials of injustice, right? And we get so upset about that. Nonetheless, Pilate was the governor and Jesus submitted to him. Oh, it makes me so angry. Isn't that the most un-American thing you've ever heard? It says he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He just kept his mouth shut. I wouldn't, would you? No. No. I'll tell you why, because I have rights. <laughs> right? Right, right. But yes, I mean, hello. But we would agree those rights are a wonderful thing, aren't they? Aren't we so blessed to be living in a government that protects rights? And it is not perfect, but for heaven's sake, look where Jesus was living. Do you know what I'm saying? We are very blessed. But I won't equate the government and its blessings with the kingdom of God. So what does, what does Jesus say to Pilate? You would have no power over me unless it had been given to you from above. Oh my gosh, it's, the, it's, it's like a brain, like I cannot compute this. Jesus submitting to Pilate in a complete travesty of justice and saying to him, you are in the position you're in because God gave you the authority. It just, it just boggles the mind, does it not? Yes. We need to be chewing on that with our mind teeth for a while. <laughs> yeah. Mind teeth. I coined that phrase at one of our leadership meetings. I've been using it ever since. Chew on that with your mind teeth. His, his general attitude he maintained kept the same approach as he had earlier in the garden when what? He rebuked Peter for cutting off the ear of a Roman soldier. He submitted quietly to arrest. He's like, 
this is not our business. We don't pull out the sword and like fight for our own justice. Like that's not, that's not the business we're in. It's a different business. Does that make sense? And I think as we engage politically, which I think is important, because that divine authority that rested with Caesar and then Pilate and all that divine authority in democracy is given to whom? Technically us, right? It's distributed into the people who vote. And so that divine authority that God had set up to mitigate this sin issue is on us. If we are American citizens, it is on us. It is. So with that said, this obedience to the government, in our case, demands not only that we kind of avoid what's illegal, <laughs> but that we have positive participation in our government because God has set up government to do good. It is our responsibility. But there are limits to that obedience. Amen? So here's one. If you ever figure out the perfect answer to this, please let me know. Here's one. The governor asked us to stop singing. Or did Biden? I can't remember. To stop singing in church for a time. Do you remember? Ten years ago? No, it was like just a couple years said, for this time while we're in phase, I don't remember, phase Elmo, <laughs> like pick something. <laughs> I can't keep it all straight anymore. That we were asked to please not sing in church because singing propels, right? And I got on a call with all the other pastors in my district. So there's 300 of us and we have people being like, sing and don't broadcast it, do it in secret so that they can't legislate, like they can't come after. I had people saying, sing and broadcast it. <laughs> like, you'll get more people at your church. Sing and broadcast it, right? And a lot of churches grew that way in that season. Some people felt conviction. The Bible says, sing in the midst of the congregation. I will sing. Don't stop singing praises. And they took that to mean that that biblical assertion was therefore not like a, a disobedience to the state that was worthy of disobedience. And to the people who read that and took that from that, I'm like, I'm not going to argue with you. This is what... This is, this is your conviction about what the Bible says worshiping together means, right? And then there were those of us, mostly those of us who were like slightly younger, <laughs> who were like, we're going to obey until it feels wrong to disobey. And I thought, if this is eight weeks of not singing in person, I'm not going to go around lifting up people's masks to make sure that they're not singing under them. I'm willing to have us not sing, to have our worship time be more contemplative, if that means it protects people, especially those among us who are more vulnerable. And if six months from now, they're still saying don't sing in service, that's gonna be another discussion. Because it can't just be perpetual, you're not allowed to sing at church, right? But. Do you see how there's all of these different ideas about how it should be done? 
Some churches still gathered with masks. Some churches still gathered without masks. Some churches said we're not gathering in person. Chad Veach down in LA, they did not have an in-person service, I think for like 17 months. They did not do in-person service. I was like, dang, man, that's like another, <laughs> that's, that's another realm of being able to be stalwart in this position, right? What's all that to say? Is all of it in bounds? It depends on your own conscience and what you feel like the Lord has said to you. But leading this church, I can only do what I feel peace with, right? But where does the line of that obedience lay? I mean, honestly, a lot of it is a personal decision, right? It's not for anyone else to tell you what is the righteous thing and what is the unrighteous thing. <clears throat> so no one is entitled to qualify our response on the ground of personal inconvenience, I just don't like it, right? Or personal dislike of a particular legislation. When, it, when it's something that's like, it just rubs me the wrong way, or I'm being grinchy about it, or whatever, that's, that is not the line of obedience, disobedience to the state that God's talking about. When God gives us exception, is it's when what the state demands is in conflict to the law of God. And that's when we get to say, I cannot obey. I cannot go with you. I can't, like, I'm going to have to. It's like Daniel, right? When it says, you can't pray to anyone but King Darius for the next 30 days. And he goes home and he prays just as he had before. Because he's like, you're asking me to do something, right? Bowing to Nebuchadnezzar. I'm not going to bow. <laughs> I'm not going to bow. So it's one thing when the state imposes repressive measures that are very hard to accept, or even when the state acts unjustly. But we're still actually, I think, asked to submit in that place. This is so lame, and I don't like it, and I think it's not right. But unless it violates what God has asked us to do, we are actually kind of outside of ourselves if we're like, I don't have to do it. It's when it conflicts with the law of God, right? And during the pandemic, I had one random person that I've never met before email me and ask for an exemption to a vaccination. And I said, we're, we're actually, Foursquare's not allowed to write those. Also, I'm vaccinated. <laughs> and she thought the vaccination was the mark of the beast. In which case, it is a religious exemption. <laughs> right? Like, if you, in your heart, believe getting vaccinated is the mark of the beast, I'm like, I can't argue with that. That's your conviction. That's what our law allows. However... I heard a lot of people talk about religious exemptions from the vaccines because why? Because the state can't tell me what to do. That's between me and God. To which I would say that is a philosophical exemption. A religious exemption for us would be in our polity, in our theology. Think of Jehovah's Witnesses. They don't do blood transfusions, correct? They will not have it to save their lives. 
It's marked on their, is it on their driver's, it's on their driver's license. It's somewhere in their notes, I will not receive a blood transfusion. Why? It's a religious thing. It's written into their theology. That is not what we're talking about with vaccinations. And Foursquare sent us all pastors letters saying, we vaccinate all of our missionaries before we let them go overseas. If you're not vaccinated, you can't go. Malaria, hep C. At 15, I was getting them before I went to Papua New Guinea, right? And they would not have let me gone otherwise. So they're saying, you can't write a religious exemption because Foursquare believes in vaccinations. So we can't be writing those letters. <laughs> now, some pastors did, but that's where I'm saying it's philosophical. It's not religious. Does that make sense? So this is what I'm saying, though. This is where that line of obedience versus disobedience lies. What do you believe about the state? What do you believe about the kingdom of God? And then what do you believe about our role inside that system? It's totally black and white, right? No. <laughs> never. It's never. But here's the thing. This is why it's pure mud. Thank you, Joan. Clear as mud. That's what one of my ballet teachers used to say. <laughs> this is why we have to allow for diversity of thought. My dad and I don't think the same on many things, but I will tell you something. He fought in Vietnam. His brother died in Vietnam. So I allow his take on what the government that his friends died for do and not get to do, I respect and empathize and honor that opinion whether or not I disagree. Does that make sense? I come at it with empathy and understanding and true curiosity rather than saying, boomer, <laughs> right? I'm like, that's like, a, that's like a swear word. Like, don't, don't say that, listen. They've had a completely different life experience than, we, than those of us in this room who have never been through something like that have, right? So at least we gotta listen. We gotta value that opinion. And the reverse is also true, <laughs> right? So that's why diversity of thought will continue to be a value for us as a church. I hope we can have good conversations around our differences with true empathy and understanding and curiosity, and we don't write people off because they don't believe the same as us. And to keep in mind always that when we are voting, when we are taking part in the state, when we are researching our ballots and filling them out, <laughs> or like today, <laughs> that we're doing so prayerfully that we're not necessarily giving a candidate more, more credence because of the color that they run under. I'm like, what a weird world we live in, <laughs> right? As beautiful as democracy is, two parties is, it, it just, it, it, I'm, I, okay, I'm getting personal and I won't, so back it on up. Just pray, just ask the Lord. It doesn't have to be all red or all blue. Does that make sense? 
You're not betraying Jesus in the way that you vote because it's not his kingdom. Right? Our way forward is going back to what that first ideal was, that we would contribute to each other's welfare. That's where we come from as Christians. I want to contribute to the welfare of my city and my town. And what does God tell them when they go to Babylon? He says, pray for the peace of the city. Pray for it to prosper. Because as it prospers, you will prosper. And we're talking about an evil, some would say demonic, like ugly, ugly spiritual place. And they're at the admonition to the people of God as they're in exile, as captives is, pray for the peace of this city. Pray that it prospers. Because when it prospers, you'll prosper. You're bringing the kingdom to where you are, right? <sighs> Have I crossed any lines today? No. I hope not. Tried to not get salty about anything. So let's pray. going to pray that first verse over us again. See, a king will reign in righteousness, and rulers will rule with justice. Each one will be like a shelter from the wind and a refuge from the storm, like streams of water in the desert and the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. Lord, we thank you that this is the king we serve. Jesus, that you offer us streams in the desert. Lord, you offer us shade in the heat of the day, shelter from the wind. And Lord, I pray that we would in this time, Lord, in the next two years, there's always going to be another election. There's always going to be something crazy happening. So, Lord, we continually work to put our eyes on you. We continually seek, Lord, your kingdom not administrated through some government, but God pouring out of our own lives in our neighborhoods and workplaces and schools. So Lord, we say, as you taught us, Lord, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace through Jesus Christ our Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hi, thanks for tuning in today. If anything that you heard moved you or touched you in any way, 
We'd love to hear about it. So please head on over to discoverhope.org connect and connect with us. And if you'd like to support the podcast or even sponsor the podcast, just head on over to discoverhope.org giving. Thanks.